Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Clear to Close. I'm your host, Alan Paris, joined by the Alexander Hamilton to my Aaron Burr. I don't know if that means I can try to kill you later, but but the Alexander Hamilton, which is definitely the star to my Aaron Burr, Brian Traeger. How are you doing today, bud? Wow, I'm the shook by that one, but I'm a fan. That was a little from left field. I love it. I love it. That's funny. Yeah, no, I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. It's the new year. We just came back from a little holiday break. Where were you during the the holidays? Uh, was was in Colorado. We stayed local, relatively. My family was kind enough to come out. We rented an Airbnb out in Winter Park, and it had the slopes and hung out, spent a bunch of time together. It was so fun. Since I was a child, we'd always spend the holidays in, in Minneapolis or Wisconsin, where my family's from. And so was, we were really grateful to host the family this year. So was it the full family that would be in Wisconsin or Minnesota, or was it a reduced amount because of the travel? Reduced. So we, we have a huge family. And like I was the youngest kid for one of the sides of the family. So everyone's grown up. Everyone's got families of their own. So it has reduced in size over the years but it was my complete immediate family. So my mom, dad, brother, his fiance, Anna and me. Nice, sounds fantastic. How was the skiing? It was great. And we've been itching for it too, because we had gone the, the weekend before just to you know get the legs back and the snow was awful. It was, Colorado hadn't gotten any snow in early December really, but that weekend it dumped on us. It was amazing. We had great days and could not have asked for any better snow conditions, which was great. That's fantastic. I am going on, I'm not trying to count individual days, but it has been near 700 days since I've skied last. For AP, Alan Paris, 700 days. Well, I mean, COVID put a little wrinkle in it. Me moving to North Carolina put another little wrinkle in it as well. So I am itching for it. And I'm trying actually, as we speak, to figure out if I'm getting out there this probably March is the best I can do. But luckily I have a couple friends who have moved to well-known ski areas in Colorado and California. Awesome. And so I've got a free couch. I just need to find the time and pull the trigger. But talk about building back ski legs. Uh, yeah. I'm going to need to go hard with the the squats and the lunges uh, before I go out there because what I used to be able to do is not going to come intuitively anymore. And I remember the one of my first weeks at Maxwell years ago, we did a ski day as a team. Yeah, at Loveland, right? Yeah, at Loveland, yeah. yeah. And I had not skied in maybe five years, but I came back, I was like, oh, I'll get the swing of it. But we went back, took the snowcat up across, and you and a, a few others day. were hiking way up, up, up. And the drop where you guys hiked to was insane. So you, you're the real deal. I'm not, I'm not the real deal. Uh, <laughs> that is that is false. Let's clarify. Alan is not the real deal. Comes. I think you are. That that definitely doesn't exist today. That's for sure. You know what, Brian? I'm glad you brought that memory uh, back because that was one of my first interactions working with you. And one of my favorite things about you was. You hadn't been skiing in a while or snowboarding, I guess, in, in yep. five years, like you said. But you were like, yes, man. You were just like, I'm not scared. Let's go on the cat. Let's do it. Like, you, yeah. you've got, you've got, I you've was got scared, the, uh, the, 
<laughs> well, you did. You made a, You did a good job of not acting scared. So, and you were good. You outperformed uh, my expectations for what you thought you were going to do. Yeah, you, you guys hired some record. dude from Iowa, and you're like, oh, yeah, let's definitely take him to the back bulls. And I was proud that I that I was able to do that. But I did not hike with you. I can't. Oh, was one of the engineers you went up there with. I was like, you guys are hiking for a long time. I think Jason was with you too. And yeah. We finally, I just, I just watched you guys. I'm, like, I'm, I'm just gonna jump in right here. It's, <laughs> this is, this is my. It's probably the smarter move anyway. Yeah. Well, let's get this thing done because I need to go plan a ski vacation now. Is what, yeah. is what needs to happen. So I was gonna uh, keep going because I got lots. Of, we've been skiing a I know, lot I lately, I mean, but I got you got to cut me off because you're getting too jealous. I know. I, uh, I mean, maybe we have a small contingent, but I, they're likely the listeners of Clear to Close are not here for a, uh, a skiing podcast. Could be wrong. Provide some feedback, maybe in the reviews. Maybe Brian and I will do a little side uh, ski podcast, or we can do an f- entire episode on skiing. But, but I guess we'll get to the to the main topic of the discussion today. So, uh, on today's episode, we are super excited to be joined by Alex McEvans. Throughout the episode, you will hear us refer to him as Nick Alex. Um, that's because in many companies there are several Alexes, and uh, and we're on a we're on a not even a first name basis. We're on a combined last name and first name basis with Alex McEvans uh, and his nickname McAlex. Alex is a longtime technology expert and product manager, and we will explain what we mean by product and manager throughout the episode. But to to preface the discussion and why McAlex is joining us today is. You know, there's a challenge in the industry frequently with waves of margin compression and good profitability and lack of profitability. And so what we talk about is how technology can maybe make that process more efficient and smoother and create a more consistent margin. Buffer is probably the wrong word, but consistent and predictable margin to lenders. And if you're going to use technology in that sense, what needs to go into it and how is it approaching to solve problems and how do users need to be using that technology to make it have the results that it can. So we go down a great discussion around where the mortgage industry is in its adoption of technology and its digitization, what's possible with both humans using technology and technology on its own. And then a lot of the work that McAlex does of how you go make great technology have an impact to lenders. So super excited to have him on the show. He is 10 times smarter than Brian and myself, which I think will become quickly evident in the discussion. And it was just a fun, fun episode to learn something new uh, in a slightly different guest that we have on Clear to Close. I'm excited, man. This was this was a lot of fun. You're right. He's a great teammate of ours, and whenever we get the chance to to chat with him and pick his brain, it's it's valuable. So I'm excited for for everybody here to tap into that a bit. Agreed. Well, before we jump into today's episode, uh, we need to get thanks to our beloved employer and sponsor that makes Clear to Close possible, Maxwell. Maxwell's mortgage optimization platform provides America's local lenders forward-looking technology and solutions for the entire mortgage origination process from intake of application to the secondary market. Backed by industry expertise, Maxwell's comprehensive offerings help lenders stay ahead of competition while improving their workflow and margins. Each day, Maxwell empowers over 300 mortgage lenders, banks, and credit unions to serve tens of thousands of home buyers a modern lending experience. Lenders on Maxwell close loans 13 days faster and enable their loan officers to close over 15% more loans per month. To learn more about Maxwell, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com or email us at meetmax at highmaxwell.com. 
on that note of Maxwell, in this episode, we also have an exciting announcement of a new product that Maxwell is launching, which McAlex will go into detail towards. So stick around at the end if you're interested. And without further ado, let's meet Mr. McAlex. Brian, you ready for the show? Let's do it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Alex McEvans. McAlex, we're super excited to have you on Clear to Close. Um, I know you've been working on some really exciting projects at Maxwell, which we'll dive into in a second, but uh, but excited for you to share some of your insights and uh, in the financial service space and mortgage space um, with our listeners today. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, let's kind of jump into the the guts of the of the conversation today. You know, one thing that is becoming a trend in the industry, and it's borderline every headline that is out there is margin compression in the space. Um, you know, you look at some of the NBA data, 2020, because of the record volume was, uh, you know, some record levels of, of profitability in the space. However, as volume is leaving in 2021, it's already starting to put that pressure on margins. Um, you know, the cost to fulfill a loan was, I think it's second highest in like four or five years. So we're already kind of back to this kind of super compressed margin space. And likely the forecast is it's going to be continuing to get a bit worse for the foreseeable future. You know, obviously things could change. 2020, we did not predict to be what 2020 was, but it's not a great future for margins in the industry. I think a big part of this, you know, when you dive into the cost of a loan, which, uh, you know, Brian, I would love your kind of insights and thoughts here, is it's still a very human-heavy cost to fulfill a loan. You have large fulfillment costs in the space. You know, it's over $1,000 of fulfillment personnel expense per loan. You have the normal loan officer commission. And it's hard to see in the way we're structured today how you really fine margin and gains in an industry that's very human-based still today. And how you truly can control your margins and how you can find margin in a loan if that's the way your business is set up. Yeah, let's take a quick step back. So with this margin compression, what we're talking about, you know, is the is the revenue per loan. A loan that was sold for 300 basis points last year is probably going to be selling for 250, maybe 200 basis points in the near future. You know, the conventional loan typically is around 250 basis points from what I remember. But 2018 had a huge margin compression environment where that 250 was actually closer to 180 basis points. Yeah. When you're a mortgage company and your net income is sitting around 75 bips, that's a huge fluctuation. Like that is goes straight to the bottom line, right? It's crazy how much the business can be profitable or losing money from year to year. And historically, it used to be wider tailed on these dips or peaks of margin. But we just talked about 18 and 2020, and now it's coming back down. So it's happening, I think, faster uh, relative to the history. So yeah, you're right. You need to have a huge importance on understanding these margins and, and what your business is. A lot of the manufacturing process of a loan, the fulfillment, isn't broken out into a line item. When you're a processor or an underwriter and you jump into a file for the fifth time. That's wasted time. That 
time is not a line item on your income statement, right? It can be in the form of your, you know, the employee salaries and things like that, and the overhead, but it's really hard to count how much time it is just by going back into a file, adding all that time up and then putting a cost against it too. It's just, it's tough to understand your margins granularly in the marketplace. And then you add on companies who are saying, let me save you margin pay for my technology. These business owners are saying that it's counterintuitive. Where is the margin? Where's the return on investment? It's hard to see it. So that just kind of taking a wide step back and just saying like, that's what we're talking about is the revenue is decreasing relative to its near past. And what are you guys going to do to understand how your business is going to operate with that new environment? In the technology space specifically, you know, we're, we're a player in in the point of sale space and and several other technologies as well. And we're about to jump into an exciting one later on in the show. But when you look at the technology adoption in the industry, it's grown dramatically. You know, a point of sale is getting close to table stakes now for, for lenders to provide that experience to their borrowers and and everything. And but when you look at the performance of the industry, and this is not you know Maxwell specific, but I think it's it's important for you to dive in with your technology provider on all on all results and how they perform and the the results they should expect to bring to your business. But when you look at the industry as a whole, even though technology has been adopted in the industry, the performance and the yield and the margins is when you look at the graphs, it's still heavily dependent on the volume of the industry. Like you have good periods when volume is high, and then you have really compressed periods when volume is low. And so even though technology adoption is getting better, the margins aren't improving consistently quarter over quarter and year over year, as you would maybe expect in in what a lot of technology companies are touting and and saying to their their prospects. Yeah. And I think Part of what you see going on is you've got both a top line and a bottom line effect here, right? So I do think across the industry, you have lenders who are using technology and other resources to become more and more efficient to lower their costs. But at the same time, you also see greater price transparency that consumers are able to more easily compare rates across different lenders and maybe looking more at an online channel, whereas previously they were more offline. And so I think you've got pressures in both directions. Yes, lenders are becoming more efficient, but also consumers are becoming a little bit more savvy and using the tools available to them to drive down some of the pricing advantage that lenders might otherwise see. That's interesting. And then what Alan was talking about being the point of sale focus for technology and these mortgage companies that matches what you're talking about with the borrower experience. There's a whole aspect of the rest of this transaction that is not borrower facing. Where's the technology there? We know that the, the LOSs of the world sit there and there's a lot of other things, but just that is what needs to be enhanced, I feel, is less of the borrower, more of the nuts and bolts of what's going on. Yeah, I think you know when you look at the history of how technology has impacted the mortgage industry, you can probably define a couple of different waves of innovation that we've observed, right? So the first wave was was what I would call pure digitization. So it was this process of okay, we're used to a paper process, and now we're going to move to a digital process. And so that was things like, hey, being able to store all documents in an online document vault and maybe being able to collect an application online through uh, you know, a digital form as opposed to on a physical piece of paper. 
you know, I think the next wave was really focused on that borrower interface. So how do you really streamline the collection of the application, the exchange of documents, providing updates on the loan status, you know, the classic things that a point of sale would be known for. And, and I think we've we've already you know, seen sort of the, the crest of that wave where that's really becoming table stakes uh, in the mortgage industry. As I look ahead, I, I see at least two additional waves. One is, is really focused on what I would call rote automation. And so this is where you see a lot of people picking up uh, remote process automation or RPA. And this is the process of literally taking a specific manual process that today has to be manually initiated and conducted by a human and taking that very specific thing and uh, having a robot do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you can think of this as literally a bot going into the LOS and clicking the button to, for example, order a third-party service, things like that. And I think as as we look ahead, so I, I think that's part of the wave that's happening right now. I think as you look ahead, really the end state is something that I would call semantic process flows. And this is where you're not just automating individual pieces or steps in that process, but you're actually able to take an entire technology-guided process flow, elements of which are automated, elements of which might still be manual, and kind of take that process all the way end-to-end rather than kind of taking isolated components of it. And that's sort of the holy grail, I think, in the mortgage industry. One of the things that's really hard is mortgage is a super complex, super manual process. And so thinking about how do you create that end-to-end flow in a way that makes sense for such a complex and multifaceted process, that's what makes it hard. I think that's part of why mortgage is a really interesting space to look at this technology play. I have to ask you to dive a little deeper on the semantic process flows because I got lost there. So could you give an example or redefine what that is? Yeah. So I think it's the difference between saying, hey, there's an isolated action that I want to automate versus I have a system that is keeping track of everything that needs to happen in order to move, uh, let's say, a loan from point A to point B. And so, for example, that system might be tracking certain qualification criteria. It might be looking at uh, certain exceptions and whether or not they've been cleared. It might be uh, calculating certain numbers. Maybe, you know, do I have an income level that's high enough? The key difference is it's evaluated on a continuous basis rather than kind of a point in time specific task automation, if that makes Inter- sense. That does make sense. The continuous aspect does. I think about it. similar to the point of sale or other things is I put a token in and I get an output, right? Or something like that. But you're talking about, no, this is, this is continually updated. It's reading, it's learning, it's, it's giving you information as a user or, or employee. Yeah. You you might imagine it as, uh, you know, one, one instantiation of this is something like a rules engine that is constantly getting evaluated and saying, well, what do I need to do next? Right? Which documents do I have? What's still outstanding? You know, do I have an income or an asset level that is uh, appropriate to be able to approve this loan yet? What exceptions am I currently dealing with, and how many of those have been cleared? Think of it like a, as a brain sort of sitting behind the system that's constantly evaluating a set of questions here, and therefore able to guide the user, whether that be you know a processor, an LO, etc., to the next thing they need to do in order to move that item along in the production lifecycle. And historically, who is doing that? Is that up to each individual who's touching the file for a new time or retouching it that they need to, or is it a shared brain now that they all have? Like, tell, tell me about what's going on today where it's going to be different tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why the mortgage fulfillment process has remained so manual for so long. And one of the things that's interesting is when you actually sit down with processors, underwriters, even LOs, 
and you ask them to walk you through what they're doing, there's kind of this implicit action that e- that each of them are doing, which is holding the entire context of the loan in their head at all times, right? <laughs> so as an LO, I'm thinking about, okay, what information do I have and which documents are still outstanding and, and what are the levels I'm trying to get to? And you have to have that really comprehensive, holistic picture in order to figure out what to do next or how do I move this thing along? And humans are actually relatively good at that. That's one of the things our our brains are sort of designed to do and that we do comparably better than machines. And I think when you you try to distill that down and turn it into a basic set of if-then rules, it very quickly becomes this almost impossible task. And I'm sure as anyone who's tried to configure an LOS or some kind of workflow system to account for every possible scenario that can occur on a loan, like you'll be familiar with this problem. You'll see hey, it's really, really difficult to try to codify in a single way all of the different things that can happen here and to hold that context. Isn't that somewhat argument for why this will maybe never happen to play devil's advocate is like you hear all the time that, you know, there are a lot of quote unquote cookie cutter loans or bread and butters that fit a very similar look of the borrower and the property and and the, the conditions, et cetera. But then the tale is always these really unique scenarios that require this almost like, to your point, like this art of the skill needed to make it happen and the the unique things that are needed in it. Can that process and that automation fit in a world like that? Or is is it kind of doomed to fail? You know, I think there's a, there's a common expression. We tend to overestimate what we can do in a week and underestimate what we can achieve in a year. And I would extend that, right? We probably overestimate what we think we can accomplish in a year, but radically underestimate what's accomplishable in the next five to 10 years. So in my mind, and you know, I'm a technologist at heart, right? So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on technology and the impact it can have. In my mind, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And I agree, these are really difficult, hard problems to try to solve. But I think there are a number of people in the space who are already doing very interesting, powerful things. Um, and, you know, as an example, uh, you know, to harken back, there was a time when people said, oh, uh, you know, underwriting for even like a basic loan, something like a personal loan or a credit card. It, it's so complex that no computer could ever do it. You have to weigh up all of these different factors and consider all of these different elements of who the consumer is and, you know, the, the financial transaction under consideration. There's no way you could possibly code up a set of rules to be able to do that in an automated fashion. And yet here we are today where... For example, the vast majority of credit cards are underwritten in a matter of milliseconds by hard-coded underwriting machines. You've got uh, some really interesting companies that are doing really powerful things around machine learning, right? Where they're saying, hey, we, we don't even actually fully understand exactly how the model works. All we know is these are the factors that are important. And it's able to predict at a much higher accuracy level than a human, which loans will get repaid and which won't. Now, again, mortgage is sort of the pinnacle of that. It is the most complex financial transaction that most financial institutions are evaluating for an underwriting decision. And so I think it will take us longer to get there. But I think in the same way that we've seen simpler financial decisions be able to not just be met uh, in terms of what the technology can do relative to a human, but indeed surpassed, I I think it's only a matter of time till we get there with mortgage. Yeah. You mentioned machine learning. I think it's a good point to chat about with for several of our users. So there's these kind of well-used and famous terms used in, in automation or technology. Machine learning is one. RPA is another, which you already kind of touched on. And AI is another that's commonly used. When you were kind of describing semantic process flows, is that machine learning? Is that AI? Like, 
how does a, a mortgage industry player understand where there's overlap and where uh, there's opportunity in their process? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'll say up front is I'm, I'm by no means an expert in these areas. So uh, bear with me as we walk out on the plank a little bit to <laughs> give some helpful definitions. So my understanding is, you know, AI just describes any kind of machine that can make a decision, right? It's, it's something where uh, you can feed it a set of inputs and it gives you a set of outputs. So, and ideally it's one that can learn um, so it evolves over time. This also gets us into machine learning, right? Where critically, it's a system that's taking inputs and delivering outputs, but it evolves itself over time. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, it wouldn't necessarily make the same decision tomorrow that it did today. And that's because you're not just coding a set of static rules for if you see this, then do that. But rather, you're telling it, here's a set of inputs. I want you to make a set of decisions today then I'm going to tell you about what happened to those decisions. So imagine using the underwriting example. Let's say there's five people I'm evaluating whether or not to issue a loan to. Um, and I'm going to make a set of decisions, right? I'm going to approve some of those folks and deny them. You then tell the machine, okay, you approved these people. These people actually paid back their loans on time and these ones didn't. And so I feed that back in and I said, well, whatever variables I used to make my decision in the first place if they correctly predicted the outcome, weight those a little bit heavier. If they incorrectly predicted the outcome, so in other words, if I approved a loan um, that would have otherwise, uh, but, but that didn't repay on time, then actually I say, no, those weren't good variables to look at, so I should underweight those in the future, right? And, and that's why you get different decisions over time. Does some of the, the complexities in mortgage that you're talking about, is that because relative to credit cards or auto loans, the mortgage you don't pay that loan off as fast as you do the others. Like the average time you're in a house is about 13 years right now. Now the 30, a lot of people think of when they get a 30 year fixed, but to understand if that borrower is going to actually repay that loan, I guess there's indicators throughout the life cycle of that, of that loan. That's not hey, at 13, they fully repaid it or they, they exited when we projected them to exit is, is the, the length of time that they're in that loan an added complexity or no? Uh, definitely, definitely, right? Because it, it means it, it takes longer for me to get that feedback that I'm waiting for. Yeah. And also, you know, any predictive power is going to degrade over time, right? Yeah. So even, you know, a, a perfect machine that's making a decision today, there are certain facts I cannot know today. For example, if I don't know that you're going to lose your job in six months, I cannot predict that that might affect your repayment. And the Alex, we're not supposed to tell Brian that he's we we haven't given Brian that news. We that's, that's coming that's coming later that he's going to lose his job. Wow, that's right. we're trying to keep that under wraps. Um, so anyway, there there is definitely a time element. I think there's a couple of other things in mortgage that make it complex. So so one is just the set of variables under consideration are much larger, right? So in particular, it's rare. Right, we're talking about a collateralized loan. So I'm underwriting not just the individual and their ability and will and willingness to repay, but also the asset itself. That's mm -hmm. part of what I'm underwriting. So that you know instantly multiplies at least by two how difficult that decision is. I, I think the third thing is. When you look at all of the factors that are involved in the mortgage decision, you're looking at a larger set of factors than for most other considerations. So for example, you know, if, if I'm applying for a credit card, typically I'm not talking to you anything about my assets. That doesn't come into play, right? You're, you're looking at self-reported income uh, and credit history and, and that's it, right? So you're looking at a, a more diverse set of things. And then finally, there, there's another interesting dimension in mortgage, which is 
In contrast to many other financial products where it's very common for the originating institution to retain the loan, you know, as we know in mortgage, most loans are actually sold to some third party, which then divorces the importance of making that prediction from, you know, it, it sort of creates this, this two-party problem where the entity originating isn't necessarily the entity holding the risk of repayment default, at least in the long term. And so that can delay a little bit of that feedback cycle. And in, in some cases, as an originator, I may never know how that loan repays after a certain period of time once I sell it. Um, so you have kind of this, you know, an interesting constellation of a variety of different factors that I think make that underwriting decision much more complex in the mortgage world than for other financial products. Just more recently, you talked again about the credit card debts and things like that. Now, I know you have some experience in other financial services areas besides mortgage. Is one of them credit cards? Can you explain a little bit about that? Like just your experience with understanding these complex financial institutions and, and how this is happening and what that really means to your role in product management and applying that to mortgage specifically. What's prepared you to be doing what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. So to give you kind of the, the quick rundown of my background, um, I actually started my career as a product manager at a company called NerdWallet. And they're very well known for being a comparison site for consumers to be able to compare and contrast and find the best, whether it be credit card, personal loan, student loan, business loan, et cetera, et cetera. And so you know, that was really where I learned what is product management and what does it do and, and how does it function. Um, and I learned a lot about how consumers think about choosing a given financial product. Uh, and I can talk more about that in the, in the future. After NerdWallet, one of the places where I landed is a company called Affirm, A-F-F-I-R-M. I always have to clarify that because otherwise people say, which firm? <laughs> uh, the company is called Affirm. Um, and, and they do point-of-sale installment loans. So this is, you know, you're, you're shopping online and you're, you're making a big purchase and you might want the opportunity to, instead of having to pay it all up front, be able to break it up into monthly payments. Say, pay it off over three, six, 12, sometimes longer months. A refrigerator, a couch, these types of things. Exactly. Brian's, Brian's uh, Gucci loafers that he tried to buy, you know, he can pay them in, in seven installments of $100 rather than $700 in front. Exactly right. And one of the things I was responsible for at a firm was actually maintaining the core system of record for all of the loans that were being originated. Um, and so keeping track of you know, the millions of loans that were being issued across different types of consumers and, and for different merchants across uh, the way. And as part of that, I spent a lot of time working with the risk and underwriting teams there, understanding how the organization thought about evaluating uh, repayment risk and underwriting risk. And you know, it was a really interesting problem. And so I really appreciated the time that I got to spend there learning all about how those types of decisions are made. So product management, when I think of this, before I joined Maxwell, of course, I've, I've learned a lot since. Uh, product management, I always thought was, hey, I manage the inventory of the products on the shelves. Well, so describe a little bit more of, of what that means technologically. Sure, sure. And I, and I think, you know, for folks who uh, maybe have never worked in a technology organization before where you're, you're building software or hardware, product management might be a little bit of a foreign concept. So uh, the, the simplest summary I can give is that a product manager is responsible for making sure that your development team, whether that be a software or hardware engineering team, is solving the right problems. Right. So our job is to work with the business, to talk with users, and to synthesize all of that into a set of requirements to say, these are the problems we should really be focused on solving. Um, and often that goes all the way down to specifying 
very particular features and how they should work. So, you know, there should be a button on the page and when you click it, it should do this thing. But really the most important thing is making sure the team is solving the right problem. Because if you don't do that, you can have the best technology organization in the world building brilliant, brilliant software. But if it doesn't solve an important problem in an effective way, then all of that is for naught. Yes, I would love to dive deeper in that because I think, you know, we we laid out in the beginning this super complex problem and what technology is capable of and how technology can disrupt it. But so much of it is the users of the product and you as a product manager spending time in their day-to-day lives and understanding not necessarily or not only from a ones and zeros aspect of what's possible, but is what truly causes pain in their day? What is, uh, where are their opportunities for more efficiency? Not to necessarily replace that person, but to empower that person to, to accomplish more and how they get value out of the product itself. Yeah. And, you know, as a, for instance, one of the very first things that I did when I joined Maxwell is I started sitting down and watching processors and underwriters do what they do. And, you know, this is, this is a, a type of user research that you can conduct. And literally, I, w- I would just sit down with them for sometimes a couple of hours at a stretch and say, show me what you're doing and explain why. And I would ask a lot of why questions. You know, and they'd say, well, I'm going to the screen to do this thing. Well, why do you do that? You know, what's driving that? And how does that work today? And the goal is to obviously kind of create an understanding of how things work today and start to identify some of those common pain points that emerge, right? And so we actually went through an exercise with the team where after doing, I think it was like 40 of these, we call them shadow sessions, where you sit down and kind of watch someone do what they do and ask them a lot of questions about it. We actually synthesized uh, all of our learnings down to a set of about 20 to 30 insights. And these were small little sparks of, here's what we observed. And like, uh, I can give you a, a for instance here, but one of the insights might be, hey, the timeline for receiving certain docs or services back is unpredictable and inconsistent. This was like a pain point that we heard for processors, right? So for example, when I request title, I don't necessarily know when it's going to come back. Mm. If I ask the borrower for documentation, I don't know when it's going to come back. Um, And then that creates unpredictability in the processor's workflow, which then they have to deal with in various ways. And so we had 30 plus of these, these little nuggets of insights that we then went through a prioritization exercise. So we said, okay, can we rate these on which ones are the most to least painful or disruptive to my life today? And then we also took a stab at, okay, if we were to try to solve some of these problems, how easy or hard do we think those problems would be to solve? And when you rate it along these two dimensions, you can kind of create a two-by-two matrix that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, you know, here are the, the hardest to solve, but also highest impact problems, all the way down to very easy to solve, but, you know, it's kind of just a small pain point today. In your time, what was maybe, I'm sure there's some great stories of the, was it 40 set shadow sessions? Like what would maybe a lending manager be surprised by, or, or maybe not surprised by, but insights that they could get from the time you spent with these processors of what are the big issues that they encounter every day? Yeah. So, you know, an interesting one that I think we didn't anticipate going into, and in, and in retrospect seems quite obvious is I think there were one of these insights, which is my day is ruled by my email inbox, right? So as a processor, one of the biggest triggers of work that I need to do is, is emails coming in, right? Because that could mean new docs are being submitted. It could mean you know my LO is asking for an update on that file. It could be a notification that a file has just been conditionally approved and I need to review it, um, anything like that. And one of the hard things about that is you know email is kind of a good catch-all, but it's not very well organized or sorted, 
right? And so the problem is I might be right in the middle of working file A and I might get pinged via email or you know, even worse, instant message about file C and suddenly I have to context switch, right? I have to suddenly respond to that urgent request or go do something else on that file. And so this constant context switching is one of the things that processors talked about being really difficult. And when you think back to what we talked about earlier, where each member of the loan fulfillment pipeline is having to maintain the context of the entire loan in their head, you can begin to better appreciate why that context switch is so costly, Yeah. right? Because I was just in the middle of calculating income on this loan, and now I have to completely switch gears, think about you know these three completely unrelated conditions on a totally separate loan that I now need to go address. That context switch is, is a very, very heavy cost. And you know, I think some of the smartest lending organizations have figured out clever ways of reducing the magnitude and the frequency of those context switches specifically for the processing function in order to try to make it more efficient. I mean, this isn't that different than obviously a little bit different scale of focus, but focus still remains the common thread of, I mean, Henry Ford figured this out in the manufacturing processes, that context switching of, well, I'm putting on a wheel on a car but now I got to go put in a radiator. Like if you can get that person to stay focused on one thing, like that's where there's gains and opportunities. And what's different in the, in the mortgage process is we're not saying processors should only do one element of the, of the loan process, but that focus remains true. Like that's not a revolutionary idea, but it's amazing how probably as time goes on and, and layers of complexity get added on and, and responsibilities get added on, that change of focus and managing multiple loans and different stages of loans has got to be just an efficiency suck. And I think one thing that's important to realize is sometimes when you talk about these insights uh, you know, from user research of different types, they can sound very obvious and sort of no-duh. Yeah. But often, you know, actually measuring and impacting these things are not so obvious. They're so kind of figuring out the so what and what to do about it. I can give you a for instance that's maybe a little bit easier for folks to grok from my time at NerdWallet. One of the projects that we worked on there was our personal loans marketplace. And so, you know, we had a, a web page where consumers could come in and they said, I'm, I'm interested in getting a personal loan. And we would show them personal loans from a lot of different providers. So think of it as like kayak for personal loans, right? So you'd have like 20 different personal loan providers who would all say, okay, you know, I can give you this much money and this is what the monthly payment and the APR would be, et cetera, et cetera. And originally we were really focused on what information does the consumer need to see in order to be able to make a decision on which loan they want to move forward with? And so we asked users this directly. We would say, okay, you know, maybe here's three different options. What information is most important to you or, or how do you think about this? But then we did something a little bit different and a little unintuitive. We actually asked them, if you had to pick right now, which loan would you pick? And importantly, we didn't just ask them we watched what they did when we asked them that question. And uh, for context, a lot of the users we were talking to were on their cell phones, right? So they're looking at a very small screen. And what we saw when we asked people, please choose one right now, was they immediately started scrolling. And they scrolled up and they scrolled down and they were trying to compare all these different loans. And what we realized was it wasn't so much that like APR is more important than monthly payment or vice versa. It was that in order to feel confident making a decision, as a user, I needed to be able to clearly compare multiple options and feel that I was choosing the best option among yeah. the set that I was seeing. And so one of the outcomes of that that we focused on had nothing to do with 
showing more information or, or changing what data points we were showing, we literally shrunk the page. We made it so that there was an easy to compare view so I could actually see more loans in a single mobile view. And when we did that, we saw our conversion double. We saw the number of consumers who were able to confidently make a choice literally go up by two. And, and I think you know there are similar insights to be had when it comes to process flows like fulfillment, right? It's easy to say, hey, you need to maintain focus. You need to avoid context switches, et cetera. But figuring out what do you actually do in order to achieve that outcome, that's often the trickiest part. That's kind of the special sauce of yeah. how you actually create that change that you're trying to get to. Yeah. I also, I'm, I imagine the spending time with some of these processors, there are select individuals who get really creative in how they find efficiency themselves. Are there, were there any amazing processors who have just been super creative and how they pack this together in the systems that they have and, and find that efficiency, even if it's really hard to, to do today? Yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting things we saw is that the best processors always had some kind of tracking mechanism. So usually this took the form of an Excel worksheet that they had custom created. Sometimes it was a physical piece of paper that had sort of a template on it that they would fill out by hand. But, but it was interesting. The best processors realized they couldn't keep everything in their head. Yeah. It, you know, they, they were going to forget something. There was always going to be a little detail that slipped through the crack. So they had created manual systems for tracking their work that they could always fall back on so that if they needed to switch between files or if they needed to pick up a file after three days or whatever it was they could come up to speed very quickly and not miss anything. I think that's one of the, the key insights that we've glommed onto is how do you make sure that as a processor, I have the ability to track my work because you know I'm often juggling 30 plus loans in my pipeline all at once, all in different stages of development that all probably are going through a pretty standard process, but at different times all over the place. Right. And so creating a standardized way for me to keep track of what's going on so that I can always come up to speed. And more importantly, so that I don't forget any steps, you know, just recognizing the human brain is fallible. Yeah. So obviously, you've spent a lot of time with processors. Uh, you have thought a lot about in our, in our first discussion this, in this conversation uh, around what's possible in streamlining this process and technology's role in this process to find efficiency. That is because you have been working on a really exciting project that uh, we have just released at Maxwell. Wanted to see if you could just give an overview of all this time that you've spent, what you've seen as opportunities, and what's Maxwell's role for a processing team. Absolutely. So part of the reason that we've been spending so much time with our processors and learning more about what they do day in and day out and their pain points is we've actually been building out a brand new product. And so we're very excited to announce the launch of Maxwell's Processor Edge, which is a new platform designed specifically for processing teams to help them process and manage more loans faster, more efficiently, and more accurately than ever before. So we're really excited to be making this available to our network of lenders across the United States. And we've actually had it in beta testing with our team of processors for about the past year or so. And we've been really excited by the results that we've seen there. You know, increases in the average number of loans that each processor is able to close per month, as well as a decrease in the average number of underwriting touches per loan. And so uh, we're really excited to make that tool set fully available to net lenders within our network. That's really amazing because, you know, a lot of times we have questions for our customers generically about new features that we have or, or new ideas. But 
our customers are busy too. So it's, it's it, I love the way that you guys are able to use our own teams to be able to learn and iterate faster. And a lot of folks, you know, as a technology firm, when we launched our fulfillment services, were a little confused. I think this is going to clear some of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been an enormous asset. You know, one of the really tricky things about building B2B2C software is it's really difficult to get good customer feedback because folks are busy and you know their time is limited. So to have access to a highly responsive set of beta testers who are constantly kicking the tires and telling us what works and more importantly, what doesn't, uh, it's been a tremendous asset to the technology team here at Maxwell. And I think a big part of why we've been successful so far. Well, McAlex, uh, huge thanks for joining us. What you did great in the episode, I think, was shining a little light of, uh, I think, many times what we take for granted in the products that we use and the software and the apps that we use of shining all the work and the, the thoroughness of learning how humans interact with technology and not just purely how technology itself can solve things, but it's really important that the technology needs to be well-prepared by a product manager for it to have impact. So really appreciate uh, you joining us and shedding some light and excited to get Maxwell Processor Edge out on the market. So thanks again, and uh, we'll have, have to have you back on the show at some point soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that's it. Another episode of Clear to Close is in the books. We hope you enjoyed. If you're new to Clear to Close, thanks for checking us out. Don't forget to subscribe and shoot us over a review. We strive for five-star reviews. So if you feel like we met that criteria, we'd love for you to make our day here at Clear to Close. Before we sign off, we need to give thanks to our beloved employer and sponsor, Maxwell. Maxwell's mortgage optimization platform provides America's local lenders forward-looking technology and solutions for the entire mortgage origination process, from intake of application to the secondary market. Backed by industry expertise, Maxwell's comprehensive offerings help lenders stay ahead of the competition while improving their margin and workflow. Each day, Maxwell powers over 300 mortgage lenders, banks, and credit unions to serve tens of thousands home buyers a modern lending experience. Lenders on Maxwell close loans 13 days faster and enable their loan officers to close over 15% more loans per month. To learn more about Maxwell and our mortgage optimization platform, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com or email us at meetmax at highmaxwell.com. Until the next episode, happy lending. <laughs>